Welcome to Might Could, Stories of Innovation in the ATL, a new series from the Hatchery, Emory University's Center for Innovation. In conversation with thought leaders and change makers in higher education, nonprofits, and industry, we'll explore why Atlanta is the innovation capital of the Southeast. Uh, thank you for joining the Hantry Emory Center for Innovation for Might Could Tales of Innovation in the ATL, where we explore why Atlanta is the innovation capital of the Southeast in conversation with thought leaders and disruptors in nonprofits, higher education, and industry who are making Atlanta a city of the future. Today, we have the distinct pleasure of welcoming two guests to the show for the first time, both arts innovators who are shifting perspectives and galvanizing communities across Atlanta. So Anne Archer-Dennington is executive director of Flux Projects, which commissions public art that inv uh, invites audiences in Atlanta to explore the city's sites and stories as a means to imagining its future possibilities while seamlessly disrupting in small ways that slowly shift the city's perspective, planting seeds for creativity and opening minds to new ideas. Dennington started her career at the Lowe Gallery where she gained a keen understanding of the impact of art in society. In 2004, she became the first full-time executive director of the nonprofit Atlanta Celebrates Photography where she was able to apply the business acumen she had gained from years at a gallery to running a nonprofit arts organization. After a brief detour to Louisiana, where she served as director of museums for the city of Monroe, she returned to Atlanta in 2009 to assume her current role at Flux Projects, where she has proven adept at bringing artists' visions to reality and connecting artists to each other and the city. Now, as a visual artist and arts activist, arts administrator and arts faculty member Charmaine Minifield has brought to or has sought to preserve black narratives by creating public art in communities affected by gentrification and erasure. With a degree in fine art from Agnes Scott College, Minifield has served the Atlanta area as an arts administrator for nearly 20 years holding positions with the National Black Arts Festival, the High Museum of Art, and the Fulton County Department of, Arts, of Art and Culture, and producing projects around art and activism with such organizations as Alternate Roots, Points of Light, and Flux Projects. Minifield recently served as the Stuart A. Rose Library Artist in Residence at Emory University, and through a collaboration with Flux Projects, presented to her work Remembrance as Resistance, Preserving Black Narratives in Atlanta's Historically Segregated Cemetery to honor the over 800 unmarked graves that were discovered in their African-American burial grounds. Her Praise House project recently received the prestigious National Endowment for the Arts, our own town grant in partnership with Emory to present her on, uh, or, or, excuse me, to present her site specific installations in three different locations in the Metro Atlanta area to celebrate the African American history of those communities. So with that, Charmaine, if you could also join us by camera and it would be a pleasure to welcome you both to uh, Might Could. Thank you so much for having Thank us, you. Shannon. Thank you for having us. 
Yeah, this is exciting for me. We've had uh, an opportunity to speak with folks in various nonprofits and higher education, but as someone to whom uh, the arts are near and dear, comes from a family of professional musicians, um, this is actually uh, a conversation I've been looking forward to. So I wonder if we could start today uh, by discussing the project you've least recently collaborated on, and that is Remembrance as Resistance, Preserving Black Narratives. Uh, which, as we said, honors over 800 unmarked graves in the African-American burial grounds of Atlanta's Oakland Cemetery through the installation of a multimedia shout ring. So, Charmaine, I wonder if you could talk a bit about the inspiration and genesis of this project, and then if you could both discuss the process of bringing it to life. Mm, thank you. Okay, so the genesis of the project comes from, I'm just trying to angle my light right um <laughs> comes from um after 150 years um um the oakland cemetery um incident of when the city of atlanta required the found the, the cemetery to remove the residents of slave square and relocate them dispossess them literally uh to less desirable land um, in the expanding footprint of what was Oakland Cemetery there to make room for those, for white citizens. Um, 150 years later, after losing all of those ancestors, we, would, we discovered them again in 2016. Through heat sensing radar technology um, and the effort of the current administration of the cemetery to restore the African-American burial grounds, um, they discovered these grave sites with these, these um, the indication of those unmarked graves. Um, so that the work was inspired by that occurrence. It, it was in the news. It was, I'm sort of a history buff. <laughs> and, um, you know, th that incident triggered for me this idea of positioning memory and remembering them as an act of resistance. Um, inside of a contemporary landscape of, of, of the city of Atlanta, I wanted to use this moment to, uh, to assert the idea of memory um, as, a, as an act of resistance against erasure, which a lot of my work deals with. Um, and so I approached uh, Oakland, I, I approached actually Flux Projects about being a part of a larger uh, project and Ann Dennington said, oh no, this is a standalone. And um, it was an opportunity to work with Oakland Cemetery in a way that she had always wanted, I guess, envisioned, and I'll let her speak to that. Um, and so we began. And <laughs> that was three and a half years ago right now, Anne. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, 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 it has been a really long a and wonderful arc. It's so good to see your face, Charmaine. I miss you. <laughs> I know, right? I know. Yeah. Um, yeah, for us, um, when Charmaine presented the project, it just aligned with so much that was about our work and what we seek to do, um, not the least of which um, several years ago, more now when you insert COVID, we became acutely aware of the need for mid-career artists in Atlanta to have opportunities that would really catapult them to a next level. And that there were so many artists like Charmaine um, that had visions that were not being realized and that an investment in a specific time could be a real catalyst. And when she approached us with this project, it was just like, 
that's it. Like this is a time where um, voice, you know, this voice really needs to be heard. And and it was before the Black Lives Matter um, uh, uprisings and um, COVID and the summer and all these social unrest. And I think it just speaks to how artists are intuitively attuned to our times and able to sort of read what's going on in society and maybe even come up with messages that they don't realize how potent they are at that time. And it's just really wonderful to have been able to have started this project and then watch it bloom and blossom and draw so much to it over this arc of three years. So we're going to have a chance to dive deeper into this question of um, intentional acts of remembrance. And I think it's just, it, it's so present, um, Charmaine, in the works we're discussing today. Um, but it, there's something here at this crossroad of these two comments that is really interesting to me around the acts of erasure and, and, um, and kind of taking people out of stories and the acts of supporting people in crucial moments to make their story bigger, to amplify them in their careers. And I just wonder if um, any of you could offer a few reflections on that intersection of the ways that certain stories don't get told and what the impacts of that might be and the ways that other stories at just the right moment get the right kind of support and they get amplified and they get built and they give us culturally something to really work with. Um, just it, that struck me in that, that first, uh, in your initial responses, um, because those two different stories went in such different directions. But, but they coincided, I think. Um, mm -hmm. The, you know, I, I think about the March on Washington and moments that were moments of bravery, you know, to face, you know, a, the oppression of, an, uh, of a system finally at a critical, pivotal moment and to have a collective consciousness towards that. For me, the onset of that being aware that it was time to assert freedom, the ideal of freedom, was the 150th anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation, actually. Um, and that's when I started to use the, this mantra of freedom in my work. Um, and I did so in a way that was reflecting on those who cried that same <laughs> cry or those who you know, rendered that same prayer. Uh, I joined in them within my generation, basically. Um, to, to, you know, but for me, I want this to be the moment, <laughs> you know, that that we can see measurable effect, you know, of change. And um, and 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 I feel like who knew that the course of events would be what they were. But all of this was that moment for me. This was the moment to to, um, you know, really pray the prayer of my own ancestors um, inside of the response to harm and violence against uh, my generation and my people in a way that could be heard um, 
you know, to to finally see, um, you know, change. And it could be on on the smallest level of remembering those who were harmed 150 years ago by this displacement as a as a as a symbol of how to repair that harm today um, and and move in a way that that harm does not continue and that erasure does not continue. May it inspire, um, first of all, the telling of our stories because those stories are not being told. That's a form of erasure as well. You look at the, the landscape of, of uh, you know, throughout from emancipation to now and the narrative and who's been in power of that and in control of that landscape to shape that narrative. And that that has fed an inequity um, uh, and, and, you know, created a whole different false narrative that I feel that needs to be addressed and corrected. And, and artistically, we can do that. And we can do that in a way that um, doesn't require um, harm again, you know, it can invite you into the circle, you know, when the power goes out <laughs> in the Gambia, everyone just go, oh, we all just go walk out into the compound and sit in the circle, you know. <laughs> I, I gotta say, this yeah. is, it, it's both such a powerful story and I love the way that you've sort of summed that up is, you know, with art has the ability to, to kind of revisit this, but in a way that uh, that prevents us from continuing to perpetrate the harm, right? It gives you this, this ability to address these same stories in a way that is liberating and can kind of um, move things forward in a more positive note. And I wonder if you could sort of jump in on that note and respond to the previous question about then kind of helping to tell the right story at the right time with art or with performance in a way that advances the narratives that are more important to us collectively and can do more collective good. Yeah. So, I mean, I, part of our mission is that we invite audiences and to um, explore Atlanta's sites and stories as a way of imagining its possibilities. And I wouldn't say our work is historical, but um, it, it does look at places and that places have memories and imprints and that maybe history is not always linear. And we, we Flux Projects is a platform for artists like Charmaine to tell their stories. Um, but art has this ability to break down barriers and sort of disrupt our status quo. And I think Often through art, people are able to hear stories that they might not be able to hear otherwise. Um, art also gives a very human aspect to stories. And, and our work is in public spaces. It, it's not in traditional venues. We seek spaces that already have an audience. Um, so we are putting work in context and in conversation with other other people, other artists. Um, and it's just a way of saying that I feel like right now, always, but right now, we've often lost the ability to listen. Like we, we are so set in our narratives that we've lost the ability to listen. What, what art has the opportunity to do is create a space for us to come together and hear a story in a new way and humanize it. 
and and it, it tends to break down barriers. And and like Charmaine talked about, this um, this there is something very powerful about remembering. And I have learned so much for her from her along this journey. But this African-American story in Atlanta as um, epitomized in the displacement of, of black bodies in the cemetery. And, th- and that's something that we can all relate to, right? Like everyone, everyone, we all relate to the sacredness with which we treat our dead, right? And when, when we're able to see it and stand in it um, and understand it. And what, what I found is that it had this powerful impact that it, it, it extended beyond race, but for um, African-Americans, for Charmaine, for artists, there was something very powerful about just acknowledgement. And I think that, you know, maybe there's a lot to be repaired, a lot to be fixed. Um, some things cannot be undone, but they can be acknowledged. And, and, and that is a first step in all of this. And I think that that was something very powerful about what Charmaine did. And it just, it, you know, it said, remembering, let's come together and remember. And, um, because of all the community partners that we had, because of Oakland Cemetery and the way they embraced it, we were able to do it a way that, in a way that, that grounded that with honor and reverence. It wasn't just, hey, this story happened. It's, it, it was, um, I mean, it literally was a praise house. But I, I like to say that the best of our work always has sort of a church-like quality to it. Um, people can come to it. They can approach it communally or individually and take something away on both of those fronts. So maybe let's pause for a second and dig into this question of church-like quality of good art in physical spaces. And also, Charmaine, I'd love to pick up on something you talked about, which was this kind of hearing and recognizing the prayer of your ancestors uh, in relation to these themes in this moment. And I would love to talk a little bit about the the form of this work, um, about uh, Praise House and Ring Shout, um, which may not be familiar to folks in the audience. Um, and if you could reflect on that, Charmaine, and kind of why those were the conceptual anchors you chose for this. And then maybe, Anne, you could jump in and offer a few more thoughts about how some of those uh, conceptual anchors anchor other things that Flux does, as you've just suggested, that um, these kinds of church-like qualities um, really bring things together in a powerful way in, in communal spaces. So we, during enslavement, it was um, illegal for us to gather except for worship. It was also illegal, it became illegal for us to have our drums. Uh, It was a form of communication. They, you know, that the system of that day did not want community to exist between us. Um, And, and, you know, to think through just that um, and to reclaim that, um, you know, in a way that sort of unifies us from the present all the way back to the past, that even in spite of that, those laws, we preserved our identity by gathering and, and, and we replaced our drums with a communal drum uh, inside of the 
the, on the floors of these praise houses. Um, they became our instruments. So, you know, it, it ushered in a, sort of a way of, of innovation for our ancestors and that reaffirmed their identity and insulated them uh, within their efforts for, for creating and preserving community. Um, so when you came into a praise house, you stood along the walls in circle. Um, there was, this was before pulpits and pews. So there was this equity by virtue of the, the type of gathering you were having um, and the, the space in which you were occupying collectively. And you, you, uh, you tune the room itself with your voice. So through harmony, you created community. Um, then in circle, uh, when, the, when the, the tuning of the room was happening, it was these long drawn out songs uh, called a metered hymn. And in our praise house, we have a, a, a soundtrack that was recorded by um, soprano uh, vocalist, uh, Melisha Jesse Taylor um, at First Congregational Church. Um, she gathered with uh, Salah Anansa, another musician collaborator, and they recorded our anthem. Um, but at the beginning, as you hear it, is this long drawn out notes that are called a metered hymn. Um, and that was a way that we were tuning the room, the instrument of the room, the praise house itself. Uh, and then the beat would hit and the speed, would, the tempo would pick up and the whole, whole room of us would move in circle. And that was called the ring shout. So the ring shout, even though it says shout, it actually is the movement of the body. And in this sort of communal prayer. And for me, it lifted up our intentions. You know, it created a collective communal prayer, lifted up our intentions. Um, and in our praise house, we lift up freedom. Um, the most, one of the most famous ring shouts that was performed was the night of um, uh, watch night service is what we call it now. Uh, we called it uh, on the night of emancipation in Savannah. They were looking for the Union soldiers to arrive, watching all night long. Um, and for us, that turned into all night prayer, all night prayer. So in black churches, there's a tradition called watch night service where you would be in prayer all night long. Um, and so I wanted to use all of that, that that moment of remembrance for them, their African ceremonial traditions, their themselves, their community, their intention for freedom, their collective prayers. I wanted to use that moment of resistance inside of memory that they were performing as a symbol of how to do that now, um, of how to, to assert and affirm black life, <laughs> you know, today, you know. Um, and, 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 and then, you know, insist that that assertion is perpetual forevermore in a way that's equitable um, and corrective. Uh, and I think that the example of the Praise House at Oakland Cemetery is in that direction. And we've gone on to receive um, our town grant and a, a commission to do three more Praise Houses. And they will go in communities. The next is at Southview Cemetery, where African-Americans established their own cemetery. 
1888 and gathered their own resources and bought 100 acres of land. It's rolling and gorgeous and wait till you see it. It is amazing. I'm so excited. <laughs> We're presenting a preview event this weekend uh, as a part of Elevate Atlanta. And I'm serving as the curator for Elevate this year for the city. Um, and then the next one is at um, uh, downtown Decatur, where it will replace a Confederate monument. And it will be a permanent structure on the square. Um, in front of the DeKalb History Center. And I went to Agnes Sky. <laughs> and so I've been looking at that square now, you know, for a while in hopes for this. So this is a, a dream and a prayer come true. And that praise house is in honor of Beacon Hill, the all black town that was once downtown Decatur. Um, and then the, the third will actually come to the campus of Emory. And that's all uh, happened in 2022. So this, that's what's, those, are the, those are the seeds that were planted, <laughs> you know, on the hollowed grounds and out of these 879 or so souls in Oakland Cemetery uh, in African-American tradition and African indigenous traditions. When you call on your ancestors, it is to get to work. What do you want? <laughs> what are you asking them for? Why are they, who called me? You know, type thing. And they're ready to assist. And so in their honor, in that name, in that light, you know, we are, we are singing their very prayers that they, that they sang for us, freedom. Um, and I will certainly, I would love for you to jump in and reflect on this question of flux projects and um, art and installations as communal spaces that play some similar roles to churches. But Charmaine, I didn't want to lose the chance to say um, there, there was so much in that response that was just, it was new to me. Um, it was emotional for me. Um, it, it, the, the final comment of when you call on your ancestors, it's to get to work. Um, there's something in that that is just so deeply um, meaningful in terms of connecting whatever has happened in the past to better opportunities in the future. Um, maybe that's the, the moment that really zinged me because um, I'm from a long line of Midwesterners um, and this is the way we always connected, right? Um, so uh, when I hear stories of, of my grandparents, um, you know, um, homesteading like the central parts of Michigan in the early 1800s, like this is, these are the stories that have come through my family tradition. Um, but also to hear, you know, not just the, in what you said, not just the future possibilities of having that sort of um, heritage, but the differences in what those pasts represent for us um, and how we have to go about working with those as we call on our ancestors to get to work for the future. Um, so, you know, apologies if that's a bit untethered, but that, that, that comment got me. Um, you, it, you're it, a musician. Something in that. You're a musician. Yeah, the yeah, family, maybe. A musician. Um, well, we, you've been in circle before. You probably have been in a in a, in a ring shot before. If you've yeah. been in, if you've been in church, you probably you know those 
but even the way you tell your story is in similar. You can hear the wisdom mm -hmm. of the, your ancestors in their memory, of your recall of their memory. They are speaking yeah. to you and they're informing how you see this moment and where you're going from here forward. That's them. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, you yeah. know, it's a pleasure to be here with you as you see that. Thank you for joining me in that space. Oh, listen, uh, thanks. Thanks for opening that door. And, you know, and maybe that's the, a perfect transition because it maybe that exchange is kind of a, a yet another piece of evidence in what you were saying about um, the power that these sorts of things have uh, in terms of place and space and place and time. Um, so uh, I wonder, Anne, what you would want to sort of add to this this theme. I mean, I would just add that um, you're both talking about this remembering of stories. And I think that in Atlanta, in the South, maybe everywhere, you know, the past can be complicated. And mm -hmm. Atlanta as a city has done so much to be the next best thing, right? So we focus so much on our future. And I, I think that our past has a lot to tell us and to be celebrated. And I'm not saying getting getting stuck in the past, but I think what what Flux Projects does, and Charmaine's work is a prime example of it, is it creates a dialogue, past, present, future. And it looks at how these are linked and how they inform one another. And, you know, there are a lot of voices that have been lost in Atlanta, the indigenous voice being another one. And we are working with another, we've worked with another artist and continue with Chinupa Hanska Luger, who is also has a installation at the Carlos Museum now. Mm -hmm. So I applaud Emory for being part of these conversations on multiple fronts. But I, I think it's that. I think it's making a place where um, it, making a place for these, these time points to be in conversation. And, you know, we're, we're in the South, so it's very narrative driven. I think we are very driven by stories. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, it's interesting you say that. I will say that, um, you know, I've, I've tipped my hand. I'm, I'm a Yankee who has lived now in the South for about 15 years. Um, and we'll take you. Good. <laughs> you Thank you. I'm from Fort Wayne. I'm from Fort Wayne. <laughs> oh, you are? Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, originally from Detroit area um, and uh, grew up kind of in the eastern prairies of Colorado. Uh, and places do have these stories, but I will say that the South's got a lot of them. And it is one of the cultural factors that makes this place so interesting and rich um, is the number of stories, the number of perspectives on those stories. Um, uh, my wife's grandfather, who was from Noonan, loved to say, oh, I got a million of them. And he could <laughs> tell you a story for any day of the week, anywhere in town you went. He, he knew the story of the place. Um, and I've always been struck by the way that Southern stories move across some boundaries in ways that Northern stories don't always. Um, it, it's interesting to me. I wonder if we could take this a what bit boundaries? in direction. Yeah. Will you, will you expand upon that when you say Southern stories move across boundaries in ways that Northern stories may not? Sure. So um, I recently read a New York Times op-ed um, by a, a black gentleman from the North, and I want to say he was from Indiana, um, who had spent uh, a number of years working in South Carolina. And spoke um, about how refreshing the experience had been. Now, it's not to say 
anywhere is perfect, as we know. But what he spoke about specifically was the ways that people told him stories and listened to his stories and and, and sort of um, worked with him in everyday conversation in a way that made him feel like he was part of the community. Um, rather than leading with a message that they were trying to do the right thing, kind of broadcasting by putting things in their yards or um, that it was uh, he, the way he stated it to paraphrase was that he felt more genuinely seen as human and less judged on superficial appearances as uh, there than he had uh, in his life. Uh, he'd worked mostly, I guess, in Chicago in his career. And it struck me as the way he told the story that so much about what he was saying was about narrative. It was about the ways the towns were working all members of that town into the same story. And that um, there were still different players in those stories and each town had different stories. And you know, if you look across the panoply of them, there are a lot of inequalities in the ways the stories are told and who they value but that there, were, there was a place for an unusually large or broad array of people within each story. And that's the thing that's often struck me about Atlanta is it seems like everybody I'm in conversation with kind of knows everybody else I'm in conversation <laughs> with, you know? So it's like the biggest small town in the world, but it's mm-hmm. also this place where it feels like everybody I meet and talk to knows a bunch of people I wouldn't expect them to know so well, because we're all kind of woven into the same bigger Atlanta story in a way that's always surprising to me uh, as somebody who grew up outside of the city. Does that make more sense? Well, and I think it is a, I think it is a very Southern thing to try to, maybe, maybe it's not, but to situate people within a narrative, like you know, mm-hmm. who, who was your family? You know, if, if, if it was the many fields, which many fields, you know? Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, I do think there's something to that. And it's funny, you know, uh, I'm from a family that's been in Michigan forever. And so people might recognize that name, but it, it just doesn't play out in the same way that it does here. It's not about the story of those people within my family and everybody else in the community, the way that it is kind of here. And so, mm-hmm. I, if it's okay, I'd love to to take this in a slightly different direction. As you know, the, the primary focus of this um, program is to talk about innovation in uh, in Atlanta. And so we've spoken with people in industry and nonprofits uh, now in the arts. Um, and one of the themes that really strikes me often, it comes up often, is how interesting and unique the narratives of innovators are um, and how rarely they're linear, um, how often they include lots of different people. So as innovators tell their stories, it, it's so rarely a first person singular kind of story. It, it's it's rambling, it's, it's non-linear. Um, and so, uh, you know, I'm wondering if you could maybe reflect a bit on um, the ways that you see your own kind of journey as innovators. So there, I wouldn't say just pointing to the bios um, that we've discussed that there's obviously a lot there that is not a clean, clean straight line. 
Um, and there are, uh, you know, like innovation process itself. It's like you learn, you test, you iterate, you go back, you test your assumptions again. It's this nonlinear process. So I wonder if you could uh, reflect a little bit on um, your story, your, the innovation in your personal stories, as well as the kind of innovations that you've you've participated in along the, the way. Um, for innovation, for me, I'm inspired by the innovation of our ancestors to create how to, a way to communicate in spite of um, the, the communal drum that surfaced. I'm inspired by that. Uh, <laughs> to push um, for my own iteration of the same inside of technology. Um, I'm really interested in... Um, you know, exploring technology um, and and having and, and pr providing access to uh, people of color in that space uh, and communities of color and stories and narratives, black narratives in the space of innovation and technology. Um, so I have been doing projection mapping, um, which is ultimately sort of carving a structure out uh, with within the te within technology and uh, using uh, projectors to basically wrap a building, um, and I've done this in spaces as an act resistance and artistic statement um, for a few years now, and then with the project, the Praise House project, it was my opportunity to build an actual structure that I could then project on myself. Um, so, uh, this iteration at Oakland, we ended up only projecting on the interior because our hours were before the cemetery closed. Um, and so because the cemetery closed before sunset, I should say. Um, so we did our, our projectors projections only on the inside. Um, it was a fully immersive experience, um, much like the Van Gogh <laughs> show that was up happening. Uh, but it was it was of the ring shout. So when you walked inside, you were immersed inside of the the, um, the prayer. Um, we have interest in exploring other technology that could create that effect. I'd love to go into augmented reality and and um, and try to create uh, it may, maybe um, you know directly a screen rather than a projection and and working with film and uh, special effects um, on that side. I'm hoping that, that I've been in residence at Emory basically during this entire project. Uh, three years was the artist in residence at the Rose Library um, in 2019. And uh, you know now that the project is coming to campus, I am hopeful that we can make connections to different departments. Uh, to explore some of these. I work with uh, a number of collaborators like the Ring Shout Gathers Folk. My project is a gathering. Um, Malisha Jesse Taylor is my vocalist I spoke of earlier. Um, Kimberly Benz is my visual arts collaborator and she is a filmmaker uh, who helps me create the visual collages. And the, she would be my collaborator as we explore the technology side. So we're hopeful that some things may come from there. And uh, I have an amazing scholar and literary artist who has done an essay and is um, working with me to invite other essays and contrib contributions to an anthology around the work. And her name is o Dr. Opal Moore, um, who was for many years the head of the um, literary department at Spelman College, 
the English department of spelling. Um, and she's a friend and colleague and has done an amazing essay on a project. So she continues and all of those different media, they all interact with the work, which I think is mm -hmm. another way of sort of pushing the idea of innovation. Spoken word is a part of that. Um, and we've done, there's a sound score that's, that's in itself a whole different landscape um, and a, a, a piece of art. We collaborated with the sound artist, uh, Muti Reed out of Philadelphia on that, on that piece in an earlier iteration. So yeah, innovation is, is where we're at. We want to, we want to be, I really want to like partner with the film industry in Atlanta. That's, I'm just calling out my colleagues and all, whoever the resources, <laughs> wherever they lay, I would really well, love to collaborate with the film industry. We should all find there because uh, I worked at Turner for 10 years and actually mm -hmm. know some good folks in the business locally. So we'll, we'll put a pin in that one. Um, but Anne, I'd love to ask this same question from a slightly different perspective, because I think what Charmaine has pointed out in terms of nonlinearity of innovation is that a lot of times it's because innovation is a fundamentally collaborative process. And in her case, a fundamentally multimedia or, or multimodal process. And so a lot of her nonlinearity comes from the influence of those factors on the work. There's another nonlinearity that I often see with innovators, which is that they can't help but try different careers and then bring what they've learned in each of those settings to their new environment. And I wonder if you could maybe reflect a little on your career as an innovator and the ways that you've kind of designed these transitions um, to build momentum each time. Um, well, I, I should say, I don't consider myself an innovator. But I can I can talk about my career, which has, and I don't consider it planned at all. I I consider it one of um, following the signs, sometimes getting those wrong, um, but being open to opportunity and um, just having the great fortune in life to be a, have been able to always follow my passion. I mean, I can honestly say I have never woken up a day and not wanted to go to work or go do what I had to do that day. So that is, and, and I am, I am grateful for that. And I am so lucky. Um, my career, um, I guess I grew up around entrepreneurs and and everybody I knew was self-employed. They worked for themselves. They created things. And I don't think I, I didn't identify it at that point as, oh, I work. I don't, I mean, as a kid, I didn't say, hey, I live with a lot of entrepreneurs that are hard workers, self-motivated, you know, bringing things into fruition. But I did. And I think it gets in your blood. Um, I've been very driven by the, uh, by working with artists. I love to work with creative people. Um, I, I consider myself not so much an innovator, but a facilitator and a networker. I mean, I feel like what I have done and as extension, what Fletch Projects does is create space for things to happen. And um, my career has really been a combination of looking at how creatives how you create a space and a platform for creatives, visionaries, artists 
to intersect with audience and and understanding that there's a lot of fluidity in that right like you know creativity doesn't happen in a vacuum innovation doesn't happen in a vacuum like you said it it's it's a give and take but that space has always been of interest to me and how that space has looked right now is public art and so it's public space and that that at this point in my life is the most exciting place to work because it is a shared space and it's a space where we all come together. Um, yeah. So I'm just going to go on record and say that you just gave the narrative of an innovator and it okay. usually starts with, I don't see myself as an innovator. <laughs> um, uh, we exactly, exactly. You picked up on that, Shannon. You picked up on that. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, you know, so many of those themes of, um, you know, well, many of the themes. I, I would say the, the, first of all, not seeing yourself as an innovator, but being open to experience constantly, listening to people constantly, hearing real problems that you're trying to solve, creating solutions, be they product solutions in the case of someone you're probably considering an entrepreneur or uh, space solutions in your case, but that are addressing a specific human need in an innovative way to bring together audiences um, and, and solve a problem. Um, I think of all of those things as kind of- As innovations. Kind of well, yeah, homework. You're generous. Thank you. It's very human centered. It's very iterative as well. Um, so I want to be mindful for folks who might have a hard stop. Um, we started a bit late, so we'll I'll go a bit over to make sure we give this conversation its due because I'm having a lot of fun. If you do have a hard stop and you want to ask questions of the guests, please put them in the chat and then we can read those into the record and you can always find your answer later as well. <laughs> Um, I did want to uh, dive a little bit deeper um, on the question of Atlanta. Um, and uh, we've spoken around this, and in terms of the question of story, we've spoken to it. But Atlanta has a lot of unique attributes. And um, it also, something we've discussed on this show a lot, uh, has so many strengths that it often becomes sort of a victim of the sheer scale and diversity of its, its successes. So that can be uh, in terms of industries from FinTech to transportation, medicine to media, education to the arts. It just has so many great stories to tell that it can end up seeming like it has a bit of an identity crisis. And I don't think it always gets the credit it deserves for each of its many and diverse strengths. So I wonder what each of you, and maybe Anne, um, I'd love to hear, since your work is so much about um, bringing together parts of the community, maybe uh, hear from you first on this one, what you would define as the unique attributes of Atlanta for which it deserves to be better known around the world? And what do you think we can all do to help build that reputation and spread the word? Um, I... I think one of Atlanta's unique attributes is its its creative class, its artist. Mm -hmm. um, you talk about how you mentioned how Atlanta has a lot of stories, and maybe these are in competition. I think that great cities are multifaceted and multidimensional, um, but part of that is telling that story, and. It's, it's our artists that tell our story, right? Um, and it can be musically, it can be through painting, it can be through photography, um, literature. I mean, I think that so many of us 
have an idea of New York. And it is, it is not because of where the companies situate or, you know, how many permits for buildings are going up. It is because there's this long legacy of artists painting the city, telling the story about the city, writing about the city. Um, we have a sense of its authentic self based upon that. And I think that um, our artists in Atlanta are so innovative. I mean, our arts are woefully underfunded. We rank at the bottom for public funding on the arts. It's um, We do not have, for all that I love about this artistic community, we do not have a well-developed arts ecosystem with mm-hmm. small, medium, getting larger, large. And yet I would put our artist against any artist in the world. They manage to do... They managed to do more with less than any group I have ever known. And I think it does come through collaboration and all that stuff. But I feel like what Atlanta could do is invest in those people and really empower them to tell our story. And where I think it's happened best is through the music industry, the hip hop community. I mean, I feel like that's a community that has embraced Atlanta and said, you know, we're from the ATL and this is who we are. And I feel like we could all all follow that. I don't know if that answers your question even. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, You know, I also love this, this phrase in here that um, the legacy of a city's artists really establish its authentic self. Mm -hmm. It's so interesting because I think so many people fundamentally misunderstand how foundational art and storytelling are to creating a sense of self and a sense of place. Well, Shannon, okay. Yeah, well, I was just going to say too often they'll see it as like, oh, well, we've, you know, Atlanta is, and now we portray it. But I think that completely misunderstands directionality, right? It is what we create in the arts and in our stories that really define who we are. And it is interesting to me to your point that a city that has such a rich heritage uh, to honor and uphold um, hasn't necessarily done that on uh, in a very organized or uh, concerted fashion yet. This yes, is the yes, thing that yes. comes up in I, everything I think, you talk about with the state, whether it's infrastructure or voter rights or, you know, one of the things that leads to this fascinating plurality that we've spoken about throughout this conversation is the lack of centralization, is the fact that Atlanta or that Georgia has more counties than, I mean, it, it's unbelievable, right? Um, and there is, there are very often uh there, we see a lack of centralized or well-funded or uh, empowered institutions to help uh, in a broad-based fashion. Yeah, so, I mean, just to your point, I mean, you're you're sitting over at Emory, and the Carlos Museum has an incredible collection of antiquities, and you know, the the, the cities we remember from the past are the ones that uh, you know understood the power of artistic practice. Um, it's the artists that show us who we are, right? Like it, it's 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 their it's their work. It's it's that shows us our true self as a community. Um, yeah. 
I think at a at a practical on a practical execution, what can the city do? Um, we we have some examples, and Anne brought up the hip hop industry, but also the film industry, and the incentives that the city and the state give to that particular genre, that particular medium, that attracts that those collaborations and presence and you know productions to our city, and and how our film artists are benefiting from that exchange from a national um, level, that to me needs to extend to every discipline. <laughs> Why do we just stop with film? You know, let's, let's create some sort of a vision for music and a vision for dance and a vision for, you know, public art and visual art and, and, and continue on in that way. I think that, we stop at the nonprofit model and you know rather than a full ecosystem that is an entire industry that is you know government backed and institutions like Emory and higher education are are feed into and you know the nonprofit side benefits because it becomes sort of the heartbeat of it for for the audience piece um, but i think that we have a ways to go, and I think there's some opportunities there if we think broader um, and invest, like Ann is saying, in those in those spaces, and see you will see some of the similar returns, some some similar returns, um, you know, that we that we're seeing in film, we're seeing in um, in music. You'll see those returns. I mean, I think they're starting to see them in public art and mm-hmm. in, in murals. Mm-hmm. Now, major corporate brands are all involved, you know, and, I, yeah. and I'm, I, I'm okay on corporate funding. Yes, I am. I take it. But, <laughs> but you know, um, you know, I think that unleashing the artist and their and those narratives and, and enabling them to tell that story, I think it, with, with that intention in mind rather than mm-hmm. capitalism, now forgive sure. me, um, that intention in mind, I think that you you can start to see the uh, a, a real return on your investment that even centers on community development and sustainability and you know um, you know really creating a different model for what you know how we want the future to to be in terms of our economic sustainability as a as a city. You know you can see it. You can see it in the in those examples, and you can probably. We'll see that in others. So um, on that note, uh, I would say that I, I see in attendance today, we have some young arts innovators that the Hatcheries had the chance to work with in the past. And students here tend to drive us consistently towards thinking about innovation uh, in non-commercial terms as a driver of positive social impact. And we've done a lot of discovery work with students here to try to figure out more innovative models for tackling some big questions. So if that's something the two of you want to come over and explore, we'd be happy to pull together some talented students to give that some thought and lead them through a sort of discovery process. I will will take you up on that. I don't know if you know this. I'm an Emory alum. I did not know that. I, I am. Yeah. Oh, that's great. That, might, that sounds like a project. <laughs> I know. Yes, I it know. does. Well, let's jump to the audience questions. And then I have one more. Uh, I'd like to kind of conclude with some thoughts on what you still want to do in this city. Because uh, in my experience, innovators always have a list of human problems they want to solve. Uh, and it's a question of, of when and how they're going to get to them. So let's come back to that. 
But first we have a question from the audience. Uh, I believe I'm an artist underneath, but not professionally, and have been interested in injecting subjectivity in objectivity uh, in my work, restructuring the rigidity of people and systems uh, in, for example, academia. Uh, for example, uh, I study computer science, which has exposed me to objective methods and people, and I wonder how to deconstruct this rigidity. What kinds of challenges have you all endured in positing the legitimacy of your ideas and works into these closed spaces? Great question. Great question. It is, it is. Um, Charmaine, do you wanna take this one? Or do you, <laughs> I, can, I can just say that I think a lot of that um, starts with you and and part of I think the artist mindset is is a adapting a mindset that you belong there and, and that um that you are there and that I think you know I am not a computer person but one of the um one of the perceived potential limitations that I have seen in like video games and the, and the like is that there are a limited number of like, you can go along, but you're really only going along paths that have been options have been predetermined. So I would say, um, maybe look outside of the computer world for a minute for, for examples where there are limitless opportunities for, for movement and then see how you can merge those. I think that that science and programming offers so much to to the arts community, and that there are um, so many ways. I mean, Charmaine, you've been talking about wanting to maybe be able to include in a in a future iteration of the Praise House an opportunity to have people put in their ancestors and the names of their ancestors, and have this begin to populate into. Um, into the video. And so to Randy, I would say, is this something that you could do? Could you, could you join Charmaine in this project or do you, or, you know, or, or, or reach out if you're, if you're interested in looking for ways um, that, that, that the, that you can bring these, these two worlds together, um, reach out to us and we'll be happy to brainstorm with you. The question from the audience is, you've said you're not an innovator, but how do you think innovators who would say they're not artists can find a place in the arts in Atlanta? So I, I feel like, you know, these are both labels and I, I have always felt like, um, I've always felt like an art, the artist was a really, I don't, lofty is the bad word, right? Like, but that, I don't know that you can go around and go, I'm an artist. And maybe you can, but I feel like that there's a thin artist with a capital A that society bestows upon you, right? And I don't know that you set out to do that. Um, it just, it's something that comes to you. So how can innovators who say they're not artists find a place in the arts in Atlanta? I, the arts in the arts writ large are the biggest welcoming everybody has a role to play. I mean, for public art, the work we do does not exist without an audience and a place and a time. And so I, I think you, I think you find your place by showing up a long time ago. Someone told me you can tell what's important to people by where they put their feet. 
and it, it, it's that if if you're looking to find a place in this world, you just start by showing up. That's great. So I'm going to circle back to the question I asked before and uh, maybe focus that question through this question of you can tell what's important to people by where they place. (laughs) I think that's a great one. So to go back to my last question about what is the human concern or the, the community need that you still want to address? Maybe just let me spin it and say, where you where do you still want to put your feet? Where do you want to direct your work and your efforts still to solve something uh, in your work? Um, For me, I am really interested in freedom. (laughs) Um, I do want to move forward uh, the efforts of social justice. Um, I'm most interested in economic justice and erasure, where that um, appears. Um, I'm, there's no way to, you know, really affect change in those areas without being realistic about our past um, and our identity. Um, and, um, and, you know, and history, which brings us to this present. I think that, um, so, you know, my work looks back in order to see forward um, in that, uh, in that way. Um, I'd like to, you know, I'd like that to, to, that to go into things like climate justice. These are, I'm an artist activist, so, <laughs> so I'm already on, okay, you, because place and belonging mean something and communities are erased based on, you know, um, racist um, uh, um, perceptions, uh, just, you know, still institutionalized racism, you know, systemic racism expressing in their communities. So therefore this landfill can go here or, you know, or this pipeline can go here. All those kinds of things. I'm, those are my causes. I'm very interested in, and I do position my work inside of to lift up those efforts. Um, For me in Atlanta, what I've been, I've been addressing is gentrification um, and the, the, this new narrative that that term is positive. Um, and how does erasure not happen, but evolution for a community um, where communities of, of color are not removed, um, but invited and expanded and evolved um, and invested in. Um, and that, that comes from acknowledging and inserting a, um, you know, um, an invitation to gather uh, and tell their stories and to be you know, equitable in that gathering and then let that story go back to their separate spaces and continue uh, where their stories are, are, are preserved and, and, um, and celebrated in a way that continues to resonate in the streets and in the communities in which they live. So our ancestors wanted to see successful businesses. They wanted to see our, our education, our children thrive in education. They wanted to see, you know, freedom. That was the, that was the, that was the work of the freedom fighters that are at Southview Cemetery. <laughs> you know, that was the work of, you know, all of those who who come before. It, it's a continuum of that same mantra and and I'm only holding that within my work for this generation. Um, and and so the Praise House sits in, it will sit at Southeast Cemetery in the Lakewood Heights community. There's plenty of opportunity 
uh, there. Uh, we're hoping to connect with uh, a number of civic organizations. Uh, we were just a part of a retreat with um, the Atlanta Regional Commission where we're hoping to allow for politicians and civic leaders and, and philanthropic uh, uh, um, you know, leaders and, and organizations to all look at a community that is driven by an art project <laughs> and, and community centered uh, in their um, you know, strategic planning for the next you know, however long, many years to come, public planning driven by art. So I'm hoping that that, is, that will unfold in, the, in that community where Southview is. And I think that even the investment of Emory um, to have this moment of outreach um, of their cause uh, as they reflect on their complex history around slavery um, and dispossession, that this moment, you know, extending to a community that upholds the memory of, of Atlanta citizens, you know, who are, who are the descendants or who are themselves, um, you know, a part of the founding of, of Emory as an institution or, the, or in the South in general. You know, it is, it is a moment of reckoning, but a moment of opportunity, you know, as well. Um, and, and I'd like to be present and frame what that future potentially could look like, you know, as an artist, like we're at the table too, like Anne said, artists want to just be present. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, a lot of times, you know, only the architects, only the scientists, only the economists are present, but, you know, the griot should come too, you know, the griot, the town griot who holds the story of generations before, you know, we should be present and go, yeah, my grandmother said they wanted to school there. <laughs> You know, if you will, um, in, in order to really realize those those intentions back then, but for today. That's great. Um, and where would you put your feet? Um, well, so I think uh, two things. One, um, continuing to create space for artists to tell their stories. I think that that is um, just a real passion of mine. Um, and the other thing in Atlanta is our use of land and our natural resources. And for me, um, it, it's how I see, it's how I see so much. So it is from our creation of parks and I should say our equitable creation of parks across the city. Um, these are the, the, you know, the creation of spaces where we come together, but it's also, um, how we use our water, where we are, we have an upcoming project that looks at the Chattahoochee and its tributaries, but there is a, there's actually a pretty long history of water that goes through our work. Um, and, but this also gets to things like if you are not good stewards of the water, all the, all the bad runs downhill, right? So we, you know, it, there, there are opportunities now to fix our infrastructure and really invest in communities that make all communities healthy and thriving. Um, so, I mean, there's so much about that. Um, I am the daughter of a farmer. And so land is just, has always been a way that I, that I, it's always been a starting point for me for viewing the world. And I think that um, so much about how cities developed and Atlanta developed um, 
was at a time when we weren't paying attention to the natural resources. And I think that the, I love the project that Tim Keen did, the, um, the, the Atlanta's design department of planning did with Ryan Gravel and looking at the city's aspirations for the future and understanding that people in Atlanta are happiest when they live close to nature. So that that's the other the other part for me is how do how do we how do, how do we use our land and how do we become stewards of that and um, so much of this is not so much of this is not imparting new information it's actually reclaiming the histories of past artists which is the indigenous people that that once lived here and so I think that in all of our work it comes back to. Um, making space for stories and rec you know reclaiming lost narratives and learning from them, but also paving a way for the future. Well, I would like to thank you both um, for being here today. This has been a ton of fun to pick up on your phrase, and it's true the bad runs downhill, but it's also <laughs> true that uh, in speaking with you that the good runs deep. Um, well, thank you. It, it I love good. that. Can I use that? Sure, the bad runs down the hill, but the good runs deep. There you go. Um, um, but it, it's really been a pleasure to speak with you both today to, to learn the unexpected uh, Emory connections uh, in your current work and your past studies and to think about opportunities to collaborate in the future. More than anything, it's just been a real pleasure to be part of these stories um, and to do some small part to help disseminate them. So, uh, I really want to thank you both for taking the time to do this. Well, and I want to thank you for your um, thoughtful questions and robust conversation. I mean, you've given me an opportunity to talk about things that I really never get an, a chance to talk about. And you've given me an opportunity to frame um, Flux Project's larger endeavors um, in in you know, in partnership with Charmaine and to really explore how our um, goals as an arts organization are aligning with the artists with whom we work and um, have a, you know, be reminded about how much of that is also mirrored on Emory's campus. So thank you. Yes, yes it's true. I agree. I second that. Thank you, Anne. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you both so much, um, and let's stay in touch. And if there's please anything do. that we can do um, to, to help support your work in the future, please let us know. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Might Could, Stories of Innovation in the ATL. To hear additional episodes, search Might Could Stories on Spotify to find or subscribe to this podcast. For more information about the Hatchery, Emory University's Center for Innovation, visit hatchery.emory.edu.